Um, so a number of books, yeah, as we were saying, just uh, partly so you know what I'm working from, partly for your own edification going forward. Firstly, that Sinclair Ferguson, Let's Study Philippians book, um, really helpful. Uh, this one from England, Partnership by William Taylor. He's my sister's pastor, so that's always nice. Um, really focusing on that theme of living life together in gospel partnership. Um, great little guide to work through it on your own or as a small group as well. Um, the For You series is always helpful. <laughs> Uh, Philippians for you, they have this whole thing, read, feed, lead. Um, so another good one if you're thinking, how do I get others into this book? Um, that's helpful. If you want to go really deep and ask some of the, the bigger questions, I just want to show you the commentary I've mainly been relying on. That's this one, uh, Gordon Fee. I don't know where he's from, sounds Scottish, doesn't it? Um, the New International Commentary on the New Testament. He's my professor at Gordon Conwell Center. Wonderful, where's he from? Originally? Yeah. He's American. I was so wrong. <laughs> I love being wrong. It's a chance to learn, isn't it? Yeah. Good. So, Gordon Feet. There you go. Jack's uh, professor. Can't go wrong. Uh, really helpful book if you're diving in. If you've got questions about particular words, verses, and you think, I just really want to find out what's behind that. Good resource. Grand. Of course, you don't have to read any of those. I just want to give you the option. Um... Good. We're into Philippians chapter 2 now. Um, two things before we do. Let's say our sentence and then let's pray. So, Philippians, rejoice to the end in the selfless, life-shaping love of Jesus. Great. Let's pray. Lord, as we come back to your word, we praise you for fellowship. Uh, for conversations over coffee, for friendship over decades and over months and weeks, uh, for old and new friendships, for seeing your work uh, amongst us, uh, seeing your transformative power in each other's lives. Thank you for the chance to reconnect this weekend. Um, and as we come to your word now, I pray that we wouldn't sever this from our life as a community, uh, but rather as we see you, and your commands to us and your generosity to us that would feed into how we love one another so please as we read and consider this passage today would you teach us what it is to be loved and what it is to love in Jesus name Amen alright chapter 2 let me read the whole of chapter 2 to you so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honour such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I want to say this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There we are. Now, far more than we could coherently look at in a short time together. So we're going to focus on certain sections. Um, start with me looking at verses 2 to 4. What do you think what these things look like? Have we ever seen them? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count, e- count each other more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind. We'll pause there for a second. It's a lot of commands, isn't it? Have you seen them? Have you seen life like that? Skip with me over to verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I imagine we just take those passages and we build a message on them. Be united. Don't be rivals. Don't be selfish. Look out for each other's interests. Don't grumble. Be blameless. It's a, it's a good Christian life. It is a picture of a certain kind of good Christian life. And it's a high bar. Consider also the reasons Paul gives us that we shouldn't do these things. Just in case you were going to do these out for the wrong reasons, look with me at the wrong reasons. Verse 3. 
Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Okay. Don't live this good Christian life for your own sake. Next. Verse 12. Fear of man. So now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, fear of man is a very powerful motivator. You might have done this yourself. Oh, well, what would my... Uh, what would Jesus think if he was looking over my shoulder at the office? What would that person who discipled me five years ago think if they were in my bedroom watching? Fear of man is a very powerful motivator. Can't use it. Verse 14. To all things about grumbling or questioning. The kind of things we grumble and question about are things that we have to do, but we don't want to do, like homework. Or jobs at work that just seem dumb. Stuff we don't want to do. We grumble, we complain. But we do it because we have to do it. Also a terrible way to live the Christian life. Maybe we do though. 21. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. I can't tell you exactly what interests you will serve by serving Christ or living like you are. But apparently there are some. Because Paul is identifying people who preach Christ, who live like this, for their own sake. For their own self-interest. We've seen there are a lot of bad reasons to be good and a difficult kind of good to be. And I hope you noticed what I did. I cut from verse 4 to 14. And what did I do? I gave us a way to live. But I cut out Christ. Do not accept that from me. That is not the gospel. A whole load of bad reasons to be good and a difficult kind of good to be. For some of us, that may be what we think we're called to in Christ. But that is not true. Christ is here. We don't have to say, if Christ was this good, I should be at least half this good. But I'm not. But I've tried. But I'm here. But I... It's okay. Christ is here. Come home. The heart of this chapter is verses 6 to 8. And we're going to use them um, to, to look at this whole passage together. Before we do, come with me to verse 1. Because there's something else really important we need to notice there. These questions. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, we can hear those one of two ways. We can hear those as the questions of a grumpy school teacher. I was one, I can say it. Do you have any, any encouragement, any comfort? If you've got even the least bit, please, would you do this? It's ridiculous, but it's easy to read this this way until we remember that he's writing to the Philippians whom he loves, in whom he rejoices. And that every one of these any's is not, is not a kind of frustrated grasping at, at obedience, but say, hey, you don't have to have it all. You got a little bit of encouragement. You got a little bit of comfort in his love. That's great. You started to understand a little bit of what he's done for you. Let me tell you what you've got in Christ Jesus and how you can live now. You don't have to be all the way. Just any. Just a little bit. It's gentle and it's kind. And like most things worth having in life, 
We don't get these things by going after them. You want friendship, you don't pursue friendship. You get to know people. You want to be living with freedom in Christ. You don't motivate yourself with all these bad reasons to be good. Get to know Christ. Let's look at how Christ lived. Verses 6 to 8. 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We'll carry on into the next few verses later. Let's pause and notice three things from these. The first thing I want you to see is that Christ loves with open hands. Look at verse 6 of me. He didn't, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Um, he shows us what it is to live with an open hand. When we grasp something, we refuse to let go of it because we fear we may lose it. That is what grasping means. We hold on because we fear it could go. And yet... Christ shows us what it is to live, to love with an open hand. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Uh, we're not going to get into the details of the Trinity right now, you know, how Jesus could be in the form of God, equality with God, all those kind of things. Jack, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> but let me just tell you on the Trinity, it is the most beautiful, wonderful truth that starts to make sense of the whole of the world once we do dive into it. But we'll park it for now. Um, Having the greatest privileges imaginable, just, just see that as what we're saying about Christ. Having the greatest privileges imaginable, he did not consider them something to be grasped, did not hold tight to them, but entered his own creation with all the realities of life, just setting aside his power. Because he knows he can pick it up again. Setting it aside, it is secure. Um, sometimes when we think of someone giving up their authority like this, it, we might not quite believe it. Um, my headmaster, principal, once a year in, a, in school would come and uh, don the little hat and serve lunch. And it was uh, an example for the school community of servant leadership. Uh, and in, in its way, it's beautiful and it can be done really well. But as a 13-year-old boy, you're looking at this thinking, okay, I can't really treat him like I do my usual lunch ladies, can I? I can't have a bit of back and forth, a bit of chat, all that kind of thing. I can't sneak something. Because in 20 minutes, he's going to be the principal again. <laughs> and he's going to remember. He hasn't really set aside all his power. He's still got it. And yet what we see in Christ is this genuine willingness to put it aside. And if you're not convinced of that, think about how Jesus lived his life. That for three decades, he let everyone get him wrong. He went through the whole of 30 years, allowing people to know nothing of who he was. Not saying, hey guys, I'm God, but I'm putting it aside. You know, I'm just one of you guys. He didn't do that. He literally lived a life like we live. Went through all that we had to do. The God of the universe humbled himself to be a baby. Vomiting, crying, having to learn how to speak, let alone know loads of things. All, all the stuff that we go through. He actually did all of that because he held his privileges so lightly in this open hand through love. He refused to overwhelm people. I love that in the Gospels. He just won't overwhelm people. He won't push them so hard that they can't consider him. It kind of makes sense of that, that, that strange dynamic we have in the Gospels where he, um, he tells people to stop talking about who he is. Don't tell anyone what I've done. 
Because until the time is right, he was determined to live this humility, not to overwhelm. It's for their benefit. Done out of love. He gained nothing by living like that. We gained a whole lot. Christ models what it looks like for us to live without selfish ambition or conceit, ready to put everything aside. During, um, during the pandemic, we've been to a fair few shows, my wife and I. Um, yeah, there's not much else to do. So we, were, we watched a fair few comedies. We got into the 20-minute comedy genre. You know, we can watch one, for, one before bed, not get deep into it. Um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, great one. Uh, one of the ones we watched, yes, um, was, yeah, we, we worked through all the obvious ones, and then we got to 30 Rock, which I was trying to persuade my wife to watch for about six months. She's like, no, that's not funny. But we got into it eventually. And if you know 30 Rock or, or not, um, it's a comedy about, essentially about the making of Saturday Night Live, but fictionalized. And it's based in um, uh, Rockefeller Tower, whatever it is. And the, all of the comedy is based on the interaction between creatives and corporate. That is, that's the show, in a nutshell. Um, all the jokes come from Tina Fey's character and Alec Baldwin's character clashing and trying to figure it out. Um, and uh, Alec Baldwin's character, this guy called Jack Donaghy, he's a big CEO in this massive corporation. All the wealth, all the power, all the success, all the adulation, all that kind of thing. And then about season five or so, I don't know, somewhere way along, once we've really got used to this character, he goes to work for the Bush administration in DC. And the whole comedy of this this bit is that he loses everything. Suddenly he's begging for budget to buy pencils. Um, he, he's trying desperately to assert himself, saying, don't you know who I am? Uh, throwing around his power, his hair, his suits, all that kind of thing. Grasping to his privileges. Uh, comedy's funny when, it, when it's true, right? Um, that whole joke is funny because it reveals something to us about the way in our culture we understand servant leadership, that we will do it to an extent, but you better remember who I am. I'll just make sure there's something on the internet somewhere so when you Google me, you can find out. And yet Jesus, Jesus genuinely does not fear losing. You don't fear losing when you know how the creation was made because he did it. When we don't fear losing, like Christ, we can live with an open hand. How did Christ do that? He, it freed him to love and serve people who barged into his life. Because he knew what was true behind everything. That he couldn't lose. It freed him to say, I'm tired. And just walk away. When it was too much for him to do. He didn't feel he had to do everything right there and then. It freed him, from, freed him to let people say the most awful things about him. Because he knew not only is there real truth, but he, is the, he gets to decide what it is. He alone tells us what truth is. And he's spoken us it over us in a way that no one can ever challenge. He knew that, and he tells us it's true of us. It freed him to let everything go so that people would know the deepest and most real things in life, and it led him to suffer and die, even for people who just didn't get it even for people who are trying to grasp at the very things he'd given up. He could hold them with an open hand for the sake of those he loves. He knew they ultimately could not be lost. Grasping comes from fear of losing, and when we see that Christ has given us a life we can never lose, we can begin to hold that with an open hand. And all the things he's given us, to know that he gave them, so that they are. If they get taken, 
still his. It's all his. He loved us with an open hand. And so we can love one another with open hands. Holding our rights and our privileges lightly. Secondly, verse 7. He's loved us with open, with open hands. He's loved us with an open heart. Um, but making, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I love how he, Paul doubly emphasizes this. Well, triply. Makes himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He came and did not only serve, but was born in our likeness, walked among us, lived that life among us. Uh, he broke down the differences between himself and us and got in amongst. It's easy to forget kind of how radical this is, um, that he would take on our weaknesses and limitations and then get into real, genuine, committed relationship with people. Um, he didn't parachute in and die on the cross and then kind of rise from dead three years later, uh, three days later. It's very important we realize he did live this life, that he's not some kind of ancient David Blaine or something. Are there any magicians who are actually important today? Anyone? Any magicians? It feels like I had a moment 15 years ago. Um, but he's not like that. He doesn't just appear, do something wonderful and go off again. He does everything in the context of a life lived before people, with people. It's not hit and run. People knew him deeply. He shared his life with people. He knew their hopes and their fears. They knew his. They knew his siblings, his parents, his profession, his friends. When he sat down and had dinner with people, they knew his miracles, but they knew his life too. They knew where this message was coming from. He, they knew that he loved people. They knew his patience with people. They knew his kindness. They saw it over and over again. Because Christ lived among the people that he was reaching with an open heart. Um, I'm sure you've seen this in each other. You've seen one another love each other with open hearts. And one of the ways you'll have seen that is through open homes. Um, it's interesting. When we welcome people into our imperfect but real lives, often that's a time when we're able to love them with an open heart. We take back all the stuff outside. I love realizing that when Jesus fed the four and five thousand, he had no food to do it with. He didn't have a living room to bring them into. He was just asking around. He won't got any food. And yes, he did a wonderful miracle on both those occasions, demonstrating profound truths. But let's not miss the surface thing that he, with no food, just with an open heart, said, hey, can anyone help me? And then fed these people. He spent time in the dining rooms of the rich, yes, but he also went into the houses of the poor. We read stories of him in the gospel spending time over meals with teachers and prostitutes, executives and tax collectors, the grieving, the hopeful, the despairing, the arrogant, the young, the old, the condemned, the disgraced, the successful and the respected. And all of those are just stories from the four gospels. And John tells us there's way more he can't fit in the book. Jesus loved people with an open heart. He was in and out of homes, in lives, sharing his now you're not Jesus. No one's asking you to be. It's a wonderful truth. He's done it. And yet he frees us to live somewhat like him. And I wonder if you've seen this, this Christ-like living in one another. 
Um, I was talking before with, with a couple of guys about how there are, there are two flag officers, retired flag officers in my church who help in the nursery. And these little two-year-olds have no idea what these guys have done. And there they are, loving these kids week in, week out. It's wonderful. Humility. Um, or the seemingly intimidatingly put together couple who dec- year after year over decades have in fact been mentoring men coming out of incarceration. Sharing life with them. At a cost. Or the single mother on welfare who welcomes a refugee family into her house for Christmas. I'm making none of these up. These are all believers. The young man in a shared house who, despite the fact that his housemates aren't Christians, still just has people over for lunch after church, hoping his housemates might meet some of them. Who hosts a Bible study in his living room, even though it's really inconvenient. Um, the girl who goes every week to work with, a high school girl who goes every week to work with middle school girls whose first language isn't English, just to help them week by week with their homework. And week by week, it doesn't seem like much, but let me tell you, year on year, that living with an open heart has a huge impact. The guy from church who goes out of his way every Tuesday, blocking out his calendar, cancelling meetings to make sure he can get to that lunch with a guy who he knows is struggling for a solid year. My sister in a year when I was straying and living overseas, struggling to see Christ, writing every Sunday, every single Sunday, something about her life, something about her Christ, putting in an envelope, sending it to France, no response. Not much impact week on week. It grew. And then moving home with a stack of letters, that'll do something. Living with an open heart towards one another. Christ lived among the people he was reaching with an open heart. Open hands, open heart. Thirdly, open eyes. Christ lived with open eyes. Read verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's really important that we realize that the cross wasn't a surprise for Jesus didn't just kind of happen and he thought oh how should I respond to this we know that when we read the gospels he predicts it three times to his disciples just for their benefit and um, it might not quite yet make sense that he lived with open eyes but we've got to think about how deliberate this whole process is that he has the end in mind the whole way through setting aside his glory taking on the form of a servant going to the cross he knew exactly what he was doing and walked as we said, three decades through life, knowing precisely where it was going. We see the agony of that in the Garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't an easy thing. It's not a given for him. And yet it is something he's committed to. Uh, if you look at Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7, um, Isaiah's predicting, uh, he, he's prophesying about the Messiah. And he says, I have set my face like flint. I've set my face like flint. I will not be moved. Come to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And Luke picks up on this and says, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And from that point in Luke's narrative, the whole thing is step by step towards the cross. Absolutely deliberate. Open eyes about where he's going. No doubt. His eyes were open to the suffering. And again and again, Jesus calls us to recognize this ourselves. To see that if we choose to follow him, we must have open eyes. 
Our lives will not be all blessing and happiness if we choose to follow him. John chapter 16, in this life you will have trouble. Second Timothy chapter 3, anyone who wishes to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Matthew 10, if they hate the master, if they hate the master, how much more will they hate the servant? If the world hates Jesus and you choose to serve him, you will be despised. You will suffer. The near horizon isn't pretty. It isn't pretty. And the far horizon isn't pretty either. It's breathtakingly beautiful. It is wonderful. The far horizon is glory and rejoicing and nothing in vain. It's enough to make the best things on this near horizon look cheap. And that's what makes Paul able to say verses 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Even if I'm poured out, if my life is emptied out for your sake, that you might know Christ, rejoice, I rejoice, rejoice with me. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Open eyes. Because what's achieved by loving people with the gospel in this life flourishes into something beyond the most vivid imagination. Something far more wonderful. And so we have open eyes about the suffering between now and that. You'll suffer. But I wonder if you saw the little image he slips in there. Verse 15. You'll suffer, but you'll also shine as lights in the world. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, in darkness you will shine. How? Just hold fast to the word of life. You're not being asked to change the world. You're not being asked to do something magnificent. I mean, you are, but it's actually just really simple. Just hold fast to the word of life. His word of life, his promises, as you rejoice in him like a, like a little foal, a baby horse, just getting to your feet. It's God's work in us. It's God's work in us that shines in the darkness. And it might just look like a tiny little pinprick of light in your life. But we know eternally that is a burning ball of flame. Testifying to God's power and goodness and his commitment to chase out the darkness. You're not Jesus. No one's asking you to be. It's okay. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. Let me tell you a story about a dead cat. Um, uh, up in uh, Northern Virginia, Tyson's Corner, the, uh, 123 goes over 7. A little bridge I drove over every single day. And a couple of weeks ago, for about 10 days, there was a, a dead cat that progressively became a little more dead every day. Um, initially, it was just kind of a black ball of fur, and I wasn't quite sure what it was. You know, keep my eyes on the road, but gosh, what's that? Um, and then, <laughs> I'm really sorry for any cat lovers in the room. Um, <laughs> over time, it just kind of gradually, degree by degree, turned over into little legs in rigor mortis, or sticking up, indicating that this cat is impressively former. That it has departed to join the choir invisible. It will never be in a little tuxedo playing a piano again. It is done. Incredibly dead. <laughs> I felt terrible laughing at it. I feel even worse laughing at it now. Um, 
But imagine if I came to you this morning and said with these things, if Christ did this, so ought you. It would be as ridiculous as stopping on the 123, which is ridiculous in itself, winding down the window and shouting at the cat, Oi, pussy, I've got a mouse for you to catch. And expecting it to do anything. It's not going to happen. The cat is deceased. And the Bible tells us that that's how we are. We are spiritually dead in our transgressions. Until Christ raises us from the dead. We have new life in him. But it's, it's not something we've achieved. It's not something he's going to hold you to. You get to rejoice in the work you do for him. He's not going to cast you out because you didn't do it. It's done in Christ. But he does expect to get to work in you. I hope you noticed that. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who worked in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work out our salvation in life because of and entirely based on the truth in the next verse that it is God who works in us. That as he works in us, we're able to work out of that in rejoicing, in working for the progress and joy in the faith of others, in all these things, to will and to act because he's already doing it for his good pleasure. Once again, he's committed to it. He's doing it. We get to be part of it. He does also expect that as his spirit goes to work in you, you will experience some kind of encouragement with Christ. Some kind of encouragement in him, even as you face difficulties. Perhaps a glimmer, but perhaps a ton. You're going to see that thing that makes you be able to say yes in verse 1. I have some, any encouragement. He's guaranteed that. He's certain that as he gets to work in you, you will experience some comfort in his love, maybe loads. If you've got any, he's at work in it. And he has absolutely no doubt that pretty inexplicably to yourself and those who know you, that over time, after years of knowing him, you will see that there's been some participation in the Holy Spirit in your life. That there's been some transformation that cannot be accounted for just by other stuff. But the Spirit has been at work in you, transforming you into the likeness of Christ as he promised. You'll see that. And if you can't see it, the people around you will. It's a lovely way to encourage one another as the body of Christ to say, I have seen the Lord at work in you. And let me tell you how. I know this used to be true of you. And today this is true of you. I know that's not because you're great. Although you are. It's because the Spirit's at work in you. And there is participation there. We can tell stories of open hands, open hearts, open eyes because God is at work in his people as he says he is. And the point today is not a challenge. Not a challenge to live a certain kind of good Christian life. It's finished. Glory's certain. We can live with open hands, open hearts and open eyes because Christ has and does. And if Christ did all of this, we're not just individuals struggling to try and keep some moral life together. If Christ did this, then we are us. Even me, this foreigner you just met. We're us, the body of Christ, alive in him, united in eternity. 
and able to live these lives that shine, maybe like little stars, maybe a little bigger. If we're if Christ, we don't have to be afraid of what might happen if we live with open hands and hearts and eyes. If Christ, we're not alone. We're us and we're his. Let's pray. Lord, that you would give up everything. You would give up your privileges and walk among us. You would live your life before our eyes. That you would make sure it's written down so we can see it today. That you would choose to suffer. That you would set your face towards the cross. These things are too great for us. And yet we rest in them. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Please, Lord, as we grow in that participation in your spirit, in that little encouragement and comfort, would you work through us, your people, the wonders that you've promised to work, that many would see your glory and your goodness through these broken vessels, and that we would know that you are the living God who has loved us and set your name upon us. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen.